Hello everyone, this is Yulei Strate. Today I'm hosting Dr. Panish Puranam. Dr. Puranam is the Roland Berger Chair Professor of Strategy and Organizational Design at INSEAD. His research in organizational science focuses on how organizations work and how we can make them work better. His current interests include organizational design in the age of algorithms, non-hierarchical and informal organizations, and architectures that support self-assembling teams. We had an incredible talk about the future of work and how this reshapes organizations, about using data to better design structures, processes and interactions. We touch on startups, a better integration of gig workers, offshoring of resources, matrix and flat organizations, and remote work. If you do find these types of conversations useful, you can support the podcast by subscribing to it. To access the video podcast and subscribe for free to my YouTube channel, go to youtube.com, type in Skills for Mars and hit the subscribe button. Alternatively, you can go to my website, yuleistrata.com forward slash skills for Mars and click the YouTube confirm your subscription button. And now I give you Dr. Panish Puranam. Three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Skills for Mars podcast. Today, I'm hosting Dr. Panish Puranam. He's a professor of strategy and organizational design at INSEAD. Panish, welcome to the Skills for Mars podcast. I'm very happy to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. Panish, before we get into the details of organization design and why we, we were set up to have this conversation, can you a bit introduce yourself and your work at INSEAD and the research you're, you're doing? Sure. Um, so I teach in the strategy department at INSEAD, but my research is primarily around the topic of organization design. And by which I mean essentially how do organizations, whether they are private companies or governments or NGOs uh, or startups, how do they organize themselves to actually deliver on their strategic objectives? And that's a topic that I've been very interested in for uh, quite a long time and have been working on. And uh, what I do in my research is try to gather data about how the internal workings of organizations unfold. Um, I try to use uh, analytical techniques to study that data and extract insight from them. I also build models, mathematical models and computational models to try and um, uh, simulate some of the dynamics that happen in organizations in the computer. And then using these insights, I try to make recommendations about how we can improve the way organizations work. And I've been at INSEAD now for about seven years. Before that, I was at London Business School for more than a decade. But I think throughout this entire journey, that's been my primary research focus. Now, I will get to organization design, uh, but I think a very interesting uh, discussion topic would also be related to the future of work and the future of leadership as you are educating the next generations of leaders and you're doing this for quite a number of years. So how do you see this from this perspective? What do you work on? What is the future of leadership look like? So leadership is a fairly broad topic and I have colleagues who specialize, I think, in different aspects of it. The portion that I focus on is what do leaders need to know about the way organizations will need to be designed and the way they will work. And um, to do that, I think what we do is we deliver both executive education for senior leaders 
as well as of course in our MBA program. These are people who will go on to become senior leaders soon. And for both these audiences, we have developed content which addresses exactly this question about what's the most cutting edge techniques that we have today to actually improve the way our organizations work. So for instance, in our MBA classroom, I have an elective called Organization 2.0 or Org 2.0 as it's called. Uh, it's basically a, a suite of very advanced technical methods to analyze data from within organizations. So this includes data on networks, data on individual HR factors, even data on co-location. And we use techniques like um, uh, machine learning, statistical analysis, computational modeling, experimental design, all to get to the issue of can we use data to synthesize and analyze better designs for the organization. So that's for the MBAs. For the senior leaders, we also tend to focus a bit more on big picture topics like what's going to change about the way organizations work. So what does it mean to run an organization where half of the decision making is in the hands of algorithms mm -hmm. and half in the hands of humans, right? What does it mean to run an organization where large chunks of the inputs actually come from outside, either through crowdsourcing or through platforms or through collaboration? What does it mean to run a large organization without a traditional multi-layer hierarchy? Uh, what does it mean to run an organization with enormous diversity in terms of demographics, not just gender, but also age? There are clear differences in the way that uh, the workforce by different age groups might be here. Mm -hmm. So we tend to give these big picture trends to the senior execs and more of the hands-on analytical tools to the MBAs. And there's some overlap. Between them. This all seems very complex. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are so many factors to take into account, right, when you design an organization. And it might be easier to just have a, a new organization and start a new organization rather than reorganize something that is existing that, that is inherently hierarchical and with, uh, with, with a lot of processes and all of that. So I have a question before we the, the, the go into the details. Uh, is there uh, anything like a good organization design? Do you how can companies know when they've reached that status? And they say, yeah, at least for a year or two, while I'm doing this in this context, this is the way I'm organized I, 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 is good. How can they recognize that? So I think they're out of luck if that's the ambition, because I don't think there is any such thing as a, as a perfect organization design. So every design we have is not only complex, it's also imperfect. Mm -hmm. right? So all, all designs have flaws. The question is, have you got the right set of flaws right now? Okay. Right, so to give you a very simple illustration, uh, every time we make a decision about how to group the organization's activities, whether it's by function or by product or by division. So each time we make a choice along one dimension, we're giving up other dimensions. And those will show up as frictions and pain points and complaints. So if you never hear any complaints, something is wrong. The normal okay. is there must be some complaints. Now the question is where are the complaints coming from? So are they the kind that can be managed and can be taken into account in your stride as part of the normal process of working? Or are they severe enough to derail the strategy, the strategic vision of the company? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really about prioritizing those, but there is no one optimal design. Okay. So pretty much they, they can understand that they've reached a decent design when they can solve the issues that arise from that particular design. That's correct. So as long as that they can see what the downsides are, but they see the benefits are greater than the downsides, then they are in a reasonable steady state. Uh, so I was looking at the various uh, strategies of organization design. And then, of course, you have your own uh, theory, the microstructure of organizations. 
Can you tell us a bit about that? And how does that change the look that we, we, that we put uh, on organizations? What are the lenses that we will use? So I think there are four central ideas in this microstructuring approach. The first is that we should broaden our definition of organizations beyond just large systems. Mm -hmm. Any system with multiple people who have a common objective is an organization. So even a team is an organization. So is a department, so is a division. And the reason I make that general point is that it makes very salient the idea that organization design is not just the CEO's problem. Right? It is a problem in some sense for anybody who is leading a group of people with an objective. Mm -hmm. Second, if you define an organization that way, you can also point out that all organizations, regardless of their scale and scope, have to solve a few universal problems. So these are problems of division of labor and integration of effort. So we can look at even a complex system like a multidivisional company and understand it in terms of these problems. And we can do the same when we look at a team of five people. Mm -hmm. So that's the power of universality. Third, the tools of, of design and redesign are not restricted to structure. So structure is an important part of redesign, but equally important is sorting, which is who do you admit into the system and who do you let go? Mm -hmm. And also sense-making, how people interact within the system to form their own culture, their own vision, their own shared understanding. So not just structure, but also sorting and sense-making. And uh, last but not the least, it's also very important to realize that there are a few recurrent patterns of interaction. So for instance, think about a supervisor and some subordinates. Mm -hmm. so that's a triangular structure which we see at various places in an organization. We see them on the shop floor, we see them in the boardroom, we even see them, if you like, in a joint venture between two companies. So these recurring patterns are what I call microstructures. So these four ideas are really at the heart of my way of thinking about organization design, which is there are some universal problems. The solutions are not limited to structure nor are the varieties of problems infinite. There are a few recurring patterns. Mm -hmm. So if you understand the recurring patterns, then we're in. Panish, I'm dealing with a lot of big corporations. And what I figured out when uh, they're trying to transform, change organizational design, move from selling products to selling solutions, move uh, from, from product-oriented departments to uh, vertical industries, right? Sometimes, uh, and not talking about the structure, right? Talking about the people, uh, who mm -hmm. you allow and who you 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 let go uh, from the system. The decisions are not always made on the potential of these individuals to thrive in the new organization, right? It's usually made either in past performance, and it doesn't predict future performance necessarily. Uh, and it's also made on financial aspects. Mm -hmm. So. Have you seen or have you implemented uh, this theory of the, looking at the microstructure of organizations and really helping companies understand who to allow in the system and who to let go in a, good, in a way that will make them more efficient and will make them thrive rather than make these decisions based on what they've been made before and usually it's financial, financial aspects? So that's a great question. The way I have been working with organizations on this is really to help them make better use of the data they have in making decisions on, for instance, forecasting attrition, making predictions about who is likely to succeed in a system or who is less likely, but being very careful to bear in mind that these are predictions based on past data, exactly as you said, and that may or may not be a perfect predictor of the future. Now, I think we are looking at two extremes and we are trying to be somewhere in the middle. One extreme is the 
complete data-free manner in which you just make decisions on whom to keep or whom to prioritize in terms of promotion uh, with no real data, just based on impressions of the direct manager concern. The other extreme would be one where you rely blindly on past data and let algorithms crunch these numbers and make predictions. And I don't think either of these make sense. So what we are ideally looking for is a sophisticated way of thinking which says, given this is the requirement of the organization going forward, here's our talent pipeline model. Here's an analytical model which looks at the data on our employees in the past and tries to project forward which ones will have the kind of right skill path to hit the requirements we want. But do all of this with a heavy degree of skepticism that the data is always going to be imperfect. It will have to be managed hand in hand uh, with some more active involvement by the managers involved. So I think the best we can hope for in the near future is some combination of data guided plus judgment guided decision making. Mm-hmm. It can neither be all algorithmic because our data is simply not that good at this point, but hopefully it should not be completely gut based either, which it was in the past. Yeah. So I think that's kind of where we're hoping to. So this is data related to humans. We also talk about processes, right? And the connection between processes, not only the processes themselves, when you build the the, the organization, the new organization design. Is there a way to look, to have data on this? Are you looking at the ERP systems to see the information flow? Or is, is it running through interviews? Or how do you look at this to really understand what's happening and shape a better way of doing things? So in theory, one can certainly look at ERPs. One can look at uh, uh, workflow processes as captured in these systems. So you know like how work moves between different people. Mm-hmm. That's technically possible. In my experience, I haven't used that kind of data, but I'm sure it's possible. Mm-hmm. What we have ended up relying on when we've done this is simply to ask people who are embedded deep within the system to draw us a map of how things work. And often this is like a complement to the other kind of map we construct, which is a social network map. Mm-hmm. So the map of how work moves versus the map of how information and connections move between people. And we then try to superimpose them on top of each other. Because the basic idea in design, as you might imagine, you want the interactions between people to be the appropriate ones given the nature of workflows. So we capture both of these separately and then try to place one on top of the other. Okay, do you, did you ever use, I'm not sure if it's possible, especially in Europe with all the data constraints, did you ever mm-hmm. use uh, cameras or video to record the movements of people? Because what I find out is that when you ask people about their processes, either they don't know how to explain it or they will explain it in the way that it should have been designed rather than it actually works. Yeah. I'm not no, sure if you've ever used video to look at, look at uh, yeah, is it, is it really like this? Do they, do they really uh, work like this? Is the work really flowing like this? So technically it's feasible, but I'm, I'm not aware of many organizations that are actually doing it. I suspect it's not going to be a, a major source of data, at least in the next few years. The okay. reason being, even if it's technically possible, there are enormous privacy and ethical issues mm-hmm. here. And even when it's legally fine for a company to do it, there is a perception of breaking trust with employees. Okay. Right? Because even if it's not written down that they can't do it and legally they can, it certainly doesn't work very well because that's not the informal contract employees have with employees. Mm-hmm. So while this is all futuristic and exciting and can happen, uh, it's not the data I'm betting on in the next two years. Okay. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see the, the issues uh, definitely on the privacy part, but as uh, just thinking of the research and the data you can get, 
it seems like uh, yeah that uh, that uh, you can gain something out of it but yeah of course we need but to there's a different place where we do get a lot of data which is the electronic record of people's interactions through systems okay. like email and slack okay right so that's very different because and in fact uh, uh, i should mention this in the context of what's going on right now so one of the implications of the coronavirus actually has been that many organizations now are experimenting with remote working yeah they're forced to because they don't have an option right they have to have people working from home and the moment you start working remotely it means you're working all digital and the moment you work digital it means you get a complete data record of how people interact mm mm-hmm. so a lot of these workflows and informal conversations which would not have left any record now leave a record so that's the kind of data i think is now being created in very large volumes literally in the last couple of months as organizations all over asia are moving to these remote working systems and i see a lot of potential for mining that data oh that would be really interesting to see the research after after this has ended because i imagine yeah. that it uh, unfortunately it will take a few months to uh, get it over with so uh, you will have quite a wealth of data Talking which is a real about, change i think in the way organizations work yeah and i think this is the way everything is moving right and this is the way or i live in amsterdam um mm. working from home uh working remotely working with gig workers working with contractors and freelancers it's kind of the norm here mm. right or it's getting more and more to be the to be the norm what's your feeling about this because you're working again with with uh, different types of organizations in different parts of the world how do you feel that this contractors the gig uh, economy has been integrated in the in the companies has it been well integrated or can we do a better work so i, I think most companies to the extent they are involved in that side of the the economy they compartmentalize it so they have kind of the old part of the company which functions more or less the traditional way and then they have some parts which interact either through uh, part timers through remote contractors some more adventurous forms could be something like using kaggle for crowdsourcing or mm-hmm. innocentive for you know innovation contests but they don't fundamentally alter the way the guts of the company work so it's fairly compartmentalized i think what what shocks like the coronavirus do is kind of force it on the rest of the organization right and i think the interesting opportunity here is to learn from these different pockets that you were already engaged with but in a very compartmentalized way to try and bring some of that insight back into the core of the company so if your contractor can work sitting at home right why can't your employee and uh, if your employee can work sitting from home then why not more of them how often do they need to come in how will we meet their need for social interaction does it have to be at work so these are all questions that we haven't really grappled with in the past but i think going forward these are very central questions for everybody. Yeah so maybe so maybe this uh, experiment of working from home and uh, forcefully working from home will bit will bring some data so we can uh, yeah. yeah better integrate this uh, gig economy it seems to work here but it seems it also i also have the feeling that companies would still like to have their own companies sitting at their own desks right and as i was talking to gus uh Microsoft IBM they are moving back and Apple they are moving back to hosting people in their own offices rather than uh supporting remote work so how how can we bridge this this the 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 this the thing that is happening right now in the market right we have more and more gig workers but at the same time companies are bringing people back in the offices yeah so i'm going to cite some research here that has been done by one of our postdoctoral students here at INSEAD mm-hmm. this is Marco Minervini So Marco and I have been working actually for the last few months with a company called GitLab 
So GitLab is an all remote company in the sense it has about a thousand employees. But the entire set of thousand employees are such that no two are in the same location. Mm -hmm. So not even the top management team is in one location. They're all fully distributed. Now that by itself is not that, that surprising. There are about a hundred companies, I think we know, maybe a little less, which are all remote. Uh, GitLab is one of the few which is at this scale and is about to go IPO this year as well. But what's really interesting is that they don't try to solve the problem of being distributed by having video conferencing or phone calls. In fact, they go the other extreme. They try to make a lot of their work asynchronous. So there is no emailing either. So okay. it's mostly work that people do at different times and staggered ways because they have employees all around the world in all time zones. And then they try to make sure that the systems capture their work. This is software development mostly, so they're using continuous integration. So the systems capture the work in such a way that it's well coordinated without the need for a lot of direct peer-to-peer -peer interaction. Mm -hmm. Now, by any metric, the work they do is quite creative work and it's innovation intensive because they're developing code. So they really are posing, in my view, a very clear challenge to the conventional view that you can't get innovation out of groups of people unless they sit face to face. Right? That's the premise that a lot of us have. That was Marissa Meyer's premise when she made the big move at Yahoo, mm -hmm. saying we should stop remote work and bring people back. But the evidence that that premise is true is actually not that deep. We don't have overwhelming evidence to prove this is true. It's how we've done it. It's been very natural to do it that way. But the other way of doing it and whether that can be creative is still a bit of an open question. So my, my sense is it will actually, uh, it, it will not be all one way. I don't think you will see a trend where companies just move everything back to physical co-location. For sure. Does it work better because GitLab, for example, is a smaller organization, only has about a thousand people versus a Yahoo or an Apple where you have yeah, hundreds of thousands sometimes, tens of thousands? So even when you have 10,000 people in a company, right? It's very rare for a project to have all 10,000 involved. Mm -hmm. So the real unit of work in a large company is still a project. And in that project, typically we are talking about a couple of hundred people at most. Mm -hmm. Now, where scale does become a problem, I think, is the following. A lot of the effective coordination between people is not because of the formal structure, but because of informal norms of interaction and the culture and the personal ties. And all of those are very hard to sustain in large systems because we can't know 10,000 people. We can yeah. know a few hundred. So that does create a bit more of a challenge, I think, in the larger systems, but it doesn't make it impossible. Okay. Also, I, I couldn't stop noticing that we're talking about software development. And mm -hmm. I feel that this way of working more agile, more through systems, and not so much uh, via the, the usual ways of interacting like video and email and all of the others, I think they are used to that. First of mm -hmm. all, yeah even as personality-wise, right? They, they are used to working through the system rather than, than not necessarily discussing. Maybe there's a, they can get, I mean, they, they all build their piece of software, usually separate from the others, and then it needs to integrate with the others. But I also feel that they understand what the other person is doing. So when they build that their piece of, of, uh, of creation, then they would know how that would integrate with the entire system because they, they tend to have this understanding of, of just software and how it works. Do you think it's, uh, it works better for them uh, not having a typical structure because they work in IT and they, they have to provide this kind of agile project work, right? Which is not yeah. a normal big organization. 
So I think you're absolutely right. The the world of software is quite special, right? I mean, software is a very unusual product, and I, I often make this point that it's a product whose um, the product and its representation are the same, right? So both the actual product and the way we represent the product using code are identical, mm -hmm. and it's a digital representation, which means we can manipulate it very easily. We can share it easily. We can make it visible across different parts of a project team. So I can see what code changes you are making and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So this is certainly not true for many physical products and for physical processes. Today, I think what is different is that as you see digitalization get to work in companies, I suspect a lot of what happens in companies today will look like software development. A lot of it will be, will be running essentially through software models, mm -hmm. through digital representations, through digital processes. So that many of the things we see today in software may come true for other parts of the organization which are currently doing physical work, but which might switch to a more digital representation in the next decade, maybe two decades, I don't know. But that's the direction I suspect we're heading. Okay, because that was one other thing that I had in mind with this agile kind of work and digitalization, mm -hmm. right? There are a lot of companies who seem to be making the effort towards moving towards this agile kind of projects and teams but they fail. Is there a mm -hmm. recipe to implement a more agile yeah. type of work? So this is one of my favorite hobby horses. So I, I really am beginning to dislike that word, not because agile is a bad idea, <laughs> but it just means too many things to too many different people. Mm -hmm. Right. So in my mind, there are at least three different ways you can think about it. You can think of agile as an outcome, which is we have teams or organizations which are very agile at adapting to new technologies. So, but that doesn't say anything. It's like saying we want profitable teams or profitable companies. I mean, who doesn't? Who wants loss-making companies, right? So that's not very helpful. The more interesting way of thinking about it is how do you get that result? And there are basically, you know, a couple of different variants on it. The world from, from the world of software, you have this particular practice of agile software development, which is very different from traditional waterfall development. And it's different mainly because it has these uh, uh, high parallelism structures. So you break up the project into parallel pieces which people can work on roughly independently of each other and then assemble in the end. And in the meantime, they do these daily scrum meetings to kind of keep track of what's going on. Now that works for software because exactly as you said, software is this special kind of a product where the pieces are separable and we can all understand what's going on in the other part of the system because the software is all fully embedded. I'm not sure this is guaranteed to work in every other knowledge industry, let alone physical industry. So that particular brand of working agile, which is really about parallel teams, relatively flat structures, quick sprints, scrum mm -hmm. meetings. I don't think this, there is any proof today that this can work broadly outside of software. In fact, I looked for this a couple of years ago carefully, I think a year ago. There isn't even proof that it works in software at scale. Okay. Right. So really we are putting a lot of hope on, on those ideas. But then people say, no, no, that's not what we mean by agile. There's a different way of thinking about agile, which is essentially flat. Uh, more autonomous, leaderless kind of situations without multiple layers of hierarchy, more accountability. And that's fine too, but again, the evidence that you can manage without a hierarchy and do it as effectively as doing it with a hierarchy is not that, that deep. It's not strong. You don't really yeah. have very deep evidence on that either. I mean, I would personally love for that to be true because I don't like hierarchies, right? And I live in an academic environment where there's very little hierarchy. But I'm also a realist. I mean, I, I would like to see that evidence, but I haven't seen it yet. Organizations without a hierarchy cannot function without people who are highly educated, highly responsible, highly autonomous, 
and who know how to communicate close to perfection. So it brings me to some other research that one of my collaborators and I have done. So this is Ariana Marchetti, who's a PhD student here and will shortly be a professor at London Business School. Um, so what she did was she actually assembled a sample of these non-hierarchical firms. Mm -hmm. And the first interesting thing is, after looking very carefully for more than a year, we could not find more than about 100 of them. Okay, so it's surprising how much press and airtime they occupy, given how relatively unimportant they are in the economy. So that's kind of an important first clue. Uh, I don't mean by that to say it's unimportant to have non-hierarchical structures. Clearly, we all want them. Right? But they haven't really scaled very much. That's, that's the first clue. But the second really interesting thing is she was able to study their culture. And there's a complicated process which I can talk about later if you like. The gist of it is very much in line with what you said. These non-hierarchical firms, compared to their counterparts who are hierarchical, tend to have very strong cultures. Mm -hmm. And by strong culture, I mean people are pretty homogenous in what they think is important. And they're also very similar to each other. So at the risk of caricaturizing, you may call it almost like a cult. Okay, so these are like cults. Not only are they like cults, the cults are mostly formed at the time of entry. So they're very selective in whom they admit and not everybody applies to them either. So what you get is a very tight sorting on a bunch of people who are quite similar in the kind of value system they have, the things they think are important and the, uh, the understanding they have of their task environment. Who can then of course manage themselves peer to peer much better without the reliance on a formal hierarchical structure. Because at the end of the day, what is a hierarchy good for? A hierarchy is very good at getting large numbers of people who are strangers to work effectively together. Right? You don't necessarily yeah. need the same degree of hierarchical control. Yeah, reminding them Either of the values, reminding them of direction. Exactly. True, and, and I've, I, I've, I've really been interested in this uh, flat hierarchies, but uh, quite a long time ago, so I haven't been looking into this uh, now. I gave it up because, I, I, as, as you said, I think it's a lot of talk for not a lot of data, right? And I find yes. that, that they work very well in um, activist organizations like Anonymous or uh, what's happening right now in um, Hong Kong, right? Mm -hmm. They tend to use this kind of organization, so, but for different kinds of reasons. That's correct. So I, I think one, one simple way to, to generalize the idea is that if you have people who are extremely motivated and very capable of cooperating with each other, why do you need a hierarchy? You don't, right? But it's precisely because most of the organizations we live and work in don't have those two properties. Mm -hmm. right? People are motivated, but not with the kind of passion and mission that you see in an activist organization. Uh, then, of course, you need some other systems to make sure people are working effectively together. As of date, the strongest system we've developed is the hierarchy. Now, I do want to say this is not permanent, right? And I was, I was looking at this for another project recently. Um, if you look at the history of Homo sapiens as a species, right? We have roughly about 200,000 years of history. As far as we can tell, most of our social systems are very simple two-layered structures till about 13,000 years ago. And it's not till the last couple of hundred years that we've actually seen multi-layered hierarchy outside of the church, the state, and the military. So the idea that every organization will look around around you will be a hierarchy is very new. It's not more than a couple of hundred years old. So therefore, it's also not innovative, right? And I think part of what I'm trying to work on is to understand uh, as we see more development of algorithms, which can start doing what managers do, not everything, but many things that managers do, do we still need a multi-layered hierarchy? Mm -hmm. And my, my sense is we may 
continue to see hierarchies, but they'll be flatter without necessarily making people feel more empowered. So we might be heading towards an interesting structure where there's very few layers of hierarchy, but a lot more monitoring and control. That's what algorithms can effectively do. So these are questions that I don't have very definite answers on at this point, mm -hmm. but they're the kind of issues that my group and I are working on. Okay. Do you think that this will lead to corporate structures being more dissolved, so working more into project teams and maybe a separate organizations who connect with each other rather than, part, rather than part of the whole of the big organization. And then each separate department, is a separate project can have its own motivation, its own values, its own purpose. And then people would move from one to another. Do you think there's a move towards that? In general, the trend is clearly in that direction. So if you reverse the question and ask, why do you see permanent silos and functional structures instead of fluid project teams everywhere? The answer is because a lot of process work is repeatable. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of repetition, right? So the same things happen month after month, year after year. So you have these big stable structures which kind of get economies of scale and create economies of uh, scope and learning and so on. What if all the highly repeatable work was automated? And the only thing that was left non-automated was the creative, bespoke, one-off kind of work. Mm -hmm. Then almost by definition, structures would morph more towards project-based structures. Right? So that's the trend. But of course, not every industry and every company is moving towards that at the same speed. So there still are very traditional companies, you know, which will continue to look like that in my professional career, maybe even yours, you look much younger than me, but it <laughs> might be the case, right? But there will be uh, other parts of the economy where these things move much faster. How do you feel about uh, matrix structures in corporations? Because I would tend so, to say generally they don't work. What's your view? Um, I would say yes and no. I mean, the evidence is to the contrary. They've now become pretty much widespread in True. every large company. If you look in the Fortune 500, I think the majority have a matrix. Okay. I think the, the right question really is they work, but for whom? Okay. So they work for the organization. I think they work for companies because what they do is they force, unlike the older, simpler structures, they force people to take into account priorities on more than one dimension. Right? In an old structure, when you were told you're in a function structure, basically the CEO is telling you, just focus on function and cost. If you're in a product structure, they're telling you, focus on time to market and coordination between functions. When you're in a matrix, they're saying, function, focus on both. <laughs> so effectively, what it's doing is it's, it's uh, enhancing synergies for the corporation. But I think it's coming at the expense of enormous grief for the employee. Because they have to kind of give up their work life. There's no work life balance. You have to work on weekends. You have two bosses. They're fighting. You're in the middle of it. So where it works well, I think it works extremely well for the organization. And it may also work well for some employees who thrive on that kind of constant friction and the politics of managing that. But for many people, this is an imposition. So the matrix works at the expense of employees is my summary. Is there a better way to form the matrix? And and to set up processes and communication because where I see it fail is exactly this. There's a lot of overlap in work because people don't communicate enough and they don't understand what the others are doing. Silos are still there, even if there's a matrix. Uh, processes are not set up right. And then they are mm -hmm. left to the employee to set up after the company has announced, okay, we are a matrix. You respond to this and this. This is what you're going to do. But mm -hmm. then there's no formal setting up of new processes of new ways of working right you're just being told that this is happening and it either takes a very long time for it to work and then by that time your company changes again or in my experience it just doesn't work they yeah 
because it's less efficient. So I, I think it goes back to a point we raised right in the beginning. Structure is only one of the pillars of design, mm -hmm. right? Sorting and sense making are important too. And what you're pointing to in my world is a way of saying you can't reorganize on Monday towards a matrix using the employees you close the shop with on Friday, right? And hope that they will somehow seamlessly adjust to these new structures because they entered the organization with a certain set of aspirations and were there because they had a fit with one particular style of working and that may not fit with the new structure. So clearly the kind of skills you need to work in matrix are not the same as you need in a traditional organization. So how will those skills come? Either you have to invest in the training or you have to wait long enough for people to form their own social capital by rotating them through the organization. So one of the things we know about matrix companies where it does work is people tend to go through multiple positions in different parts of the company. And that helps them to form the social networks and the capital to make the matrix work. Because a lot of matrix success really depends on that informal glue and connectivity. So either you have to have patience or training or you need a new set of people. So if you don't do any of these, then you cannot expect the transition to work. So if you were to give an advice to uh, companies that are moving towards the matrix. What I just said, it, it okay. won't come for free. Okay. Right? It won't come for free. So it, you have to think through carefully. Do you have the patience? Do you have the, the budget to train? Or are you looking to replace significant chunks of your workforce? Mm -hmm. I suspect the answer to the third question will be no. So then you have to think about it, the first two. There's no way to escape those. And have you seen any company doing training and education of their employees really good so that the matrix works? And what um, have they so done so good? So there are certainly organizations which have been, I think, fairly effective at matrix. In fact, I would think most of the large banks nowadays are matrix structures. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just part of their training when they enter the system and the fact that through the, the, the process of attaining seniority, you get job rotation happening. So they have invested, I think. So they have answered my first two questions with a yes. They put the money into the training and they have the patience to wait for people to mature through the system. And that seems to help. But overnight transitions and then hoping it will work automatically, that will not work. That doesn't work. But I, and I think that's really key to have people rotating through the system and then promoting internally, having succession planning and, and uh, all of that so, so people can get right. the best of who to enter and, and yeah, build a network. Yeah. Also, the norms around what happens when your bosses disagree. This is critical to understand in a matrix, right? So in a matrix, because you have multiple bosses, if they disagree, what happens? That's the real question. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's an old saying by, by the Roman uh, orator, Marcus Tullius Cicero, that a slave with two masters has no master. Okay, so that's one outcome where effectively the, the fact that your bosses cannot agree means you have more autonomy. But that's not the only outcome. I think the more typical outcome might be that the bosses cannot agree and then nothing happens. You're deadlocked. Mm -hmm. So the norms of what to do when your bosses do not agree, does it then mean more empowerment to you to make a decision? Or is it your task to get them to agree? That's a critical question. And these norms take time to form in an organization. So I'm very, very pessimistic about overnight transitions to matrix with very little investment in training or, or not enough time elapsed for the culture to develop. I would not bet on them succeeding very so would it be the employee's uh, task to make the bosses agree? In some cultures, that's the norm. In others, it's the okay. opposite. That when the bosses don't agree, it's the employee's decision. So okay. I'll mention one of our uh, former students here, Magic Workiewicz, who's at ESSEC. So his okay. dissertation at NCI was on this topic. And he studied the conditions under which either of these norms can be effective. 
Okay. Yeah, I would have, I would have thought that uh, maybe the bosses should go and ask the opinion of the hierarchical boss, both their bosses. But then it means four bosses because each of them have two more, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or even so more. Yeah, but at some boss. point you end to one. You 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 end up getting to the. You highest. end up with one, but but of course, if you start escalating everything, then the CEO is going to. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it, it does depend on the on the yeah uh, criticality of the issue as well. Definitely, yeah. you had an interesting work, uh, Panish, uh, and an, uh, an interesting paper on uh, succession planning, uh, referring as as related to uh, offshoring. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. I read it, and then um, it's very interesting because I think a lot of companies are moving into this direction of offshoring, what I would call junior level careers, right? Uh, mm -hmm. somewhere else uh, usually it's it's lower lower cost countries right so uh, so they can balance a bit uh, their price uh, and then you are thinking is this might backfire because at some point you will not have leaders in the organization you will not have mentors you they would not know uh, what exactly what you're doing right and it's hard to move the employees for from an offshore structure to uh, internally so what how can companies overcome these issues? Is there a solution to this? Uh, so it's interesting you bring up this idea on offshoring. So this is work I did, I think, almost a decade ago. Mm -hmm. It suddenly become very fresh in my mind again because a lot of the issues that were present with offshoring also occur with automation. So the exact same argument can be made for automation. So for example, if you automate the junior lawyer's work, how do you create the pipeline of talent that will become senior lawyers? Mm -hmm. Right? If you automate junior doctor's work, then how do you get in pipeline? So same sort of problem arises. Um, I think the risk is real in any profession or any industry where you have what I call a skill ladder. So skill ladder is when there are these rungs of expertise and you can't climb the higher rungs without having been on the lower rungs. That's not true in all industries, but in many industries, that's the case. So where that is the case, automating or offshoring the lower rung is automatically going to create a problem for you because you will have a shortage of people at the top. So how do you solve it? Um, there are two ways to think about it, I think. One is to think explicitly about the trade-off between the cost savings today and the talent shortage tomorrow. Right? That would be the best way to do it. Unfortunately, we know people are very myopic. Right? Most CEOs are under enormous pressure on costs and on delivering results now. So I'm not sure many will think that way. A different way to think about it is to adopt an idea from the automobile industry, which is called uh, plural sourcing or multi-sourcing. It's also a topic that I've spent some time studying. So what they do is the following. Even after they outsource the production of large chunks of their components to outside vendors, they continue to do some part of it in-house, even though it's completely uneconomical. So they will do a very small scale of their requirement. For example, 90% of my car seats, if I'm General Motors, might be outsourced, mm -hmm. but I might still do 5% of it in-house. Why? Because that gives me the knowledge I need to control my external vendors. In the same way, you could imagine that even though we outsource a large chunk of the lower rung of the skill ladder, we might still keep some fraction of it even though it's not economical to do so. More as a function of training. So it's a way to create the training ground and the pipeline from which talent might come in the future. So that certainly is possible. And I think that's the kind of investment that even the most myopic leader would certainly want to be open to that idea, I hope, because Clearly, the difference between doing it and not doing it can be very stark. Right? You can be stuck with no talent at all. What kind of tools can companies use right now uh, so they can incorporate tech and AI in their org design and 
non-humans as well. Is there a better way to go about it? Where can they go and how, how should they go about it? So how can we use AI in organization design? That's the question. So broadly speaking, there are two different ways one can do it. Firstly, you can use AI or more precisely machine learning algorithms to improve the way we make design decisions. By which I mean, right now we make design decisions often without a lot of data, without a lot of analysis, mostly based on copying best practice from other companies or if some consultant says do this, then we do it. Uh, but increasingly, I think as companies get more of their own data, they will realize that the best design is the one that's customized for them. And the way to customize design for yourself is to use your own data. So one big application of machine learning is simply using your own data to make better predictions, for example, about hiring, about promotions, about team composition, uh, about where in the system blockages might occur, where do most of the roadblocks or the silos happen in the system. These are all things that we can use machine learning for if you have enough data and you have the algorithmic expertise. Um, so they need to start collecting data, right? And they really absolutely. need to be very clear about yeah, who's performing and who's not, what is performance, who is performing, what are, what are the different trends, uh, employee skills, the tasks that they, are, that they are doing, right? The flow of the processes, collect data from ERPs, emails, and all of that. So all of that from, would be data that you would use with AI. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's just get, getting collected anyway. People have this phrase, digital exhaust. And I think that's, that describes well. We're just leaving such a big digital footprint without even realizing it. But to the extent we can actually have a good governance policy to collect it in a fair and transparent manner and uh, in a way that's compliant with the law, but also is compliant with good moral norms. So employees know that this is being collected with the intention of improving the organization. Mm -hmm. So the faster we get on that, that boat, I think the easier it is for these algorithms to really improve how organization design works. Um, at the other extreme is not using algorithms to aid design, but algorithms as members of an organization. So this is quite futuristic, right, at some level, but at another level, it's not. So many things that we used to do 15 years ago are now done by algorithms sitting in our phones, right? So we are constantly seeing this transition of skills and, and work from what we do to what algorithms can do. And the real question becomes, how do we make that decision? What goes to humans? What goes to algorithms? I think in the, in the next few years, at least, it seems quite clear that there is a chunk of things where algorithms clearly do better than humans. This is not a big, big list, but there is a list. And the list includes things like image recognition, voice recognition, text recognition, uh, making forecasts about customer churn. So these kind of tasks it's going to get harder and harder to argue that you need a human. Okay. Increasingly, there's another bucket, which is a much bigger bucket of things that we do very easily and algorithms just cannot do today. Right. So that's also very well you know, established. So there's no controversy. The really interesting problem in my mind is the set of things where neither humans are very good nor algorithms, right. but somehow by combination, they get better. Now, I find that really interesting because how does that magic happen? Right? It's like you, you put two idiots together and you get a genius. So how do you get that? And uh, I think there are actually a couple of ways we know it can happen. So one of these is the idea of error cancellation. Right? So there's this old joke about the three statisticians who go hunting. And <clears throat> they're hunting for a moose. So one guy shoots to the left, the other guy shoots to the right, and the third guy says, we got him. Because they got him on average. Right? So a lot of the error cancellation works like that. So humans and algorithms can make errors, but the errors will compensate for each other. So when you average their outputs, you actually get a better output. 
So that's one of the ways in which you are, you're beginning to see, for instance, humans and algorithms can both make recommendation on stock picking. Mm -hmm. They can both make recommendation on project selection. They can both make reject, uh, recommendations on hiring somebody. So each of them is probably wrong, but as long as their mistakes are compensating for each other, on aggregate, they can actually do better. They can do so better. This is where I think a lot of the really exciting action is. And that's what we should be watching that space. If companies do want to use AI to better organize their company, who can they turn to? Is Are there uh, organizations who do this? Are there people who are better trained to do this? Is it more in the researcher sense or should they turn uh, come come to an INSEAD or an LBS? Uh, INSEAD first, obviously, but... <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we, we, we do actually have a program at INSEAD called AI for Business, mm -hmm. which is actually, uh, I, I direct the program, so I'm the director for that program which is uh, aimed at doing exactly what you're asking. How do you take a senior manager who is sufficiently powerful in the company to be able to bring this change, but doesn't know anything about AI? So where do they start? How do they think about it? And how do they come up with a set of projects? So we do that in three days. We can take somebody who has no background. And in three days, we can not only explain the basics of the technology, but also get them thinking about what are some projects they can start initiating within the company. Mm -hmm. to check the value of this. Now, that's to start thinking and, and ideation. Once you go down the path of implementation, I think there's a big ecology of consultants, IT companies, and of course, you know, the MBAs we produce and get hired into companies, they bring these ideas there as well. So there are multiple channels, I think, to get it executed. But that first step is often quite a big roadblock. How do you go from not knowing anything about it to prioritizing, here are the three projects we should look at. And that's where we can help. Perfect. So how can people reach out to you? How can they find you? And how can they find uh, your scholars, right? Like Ariana or Marco? Um, so I, I assume you're, you're going to flash their names and yes. uh, email contacts later. So that should be easy enough. Uh, I tend to publish my research. So I'm primarily a researcher. Mm -hmm. I don't do much teaching or executive or consulting, but my research gets published in uh, peer-reviewed journals. And those are written for an audience that's not directly, I think, going to apply the ideas in practice. So to help make that translation, what we do is we periodically write summaries and uh, a simple kind of a, uh, applicable set of ideas from those papers on something called INSEAD knowledge. Okay. So this would be the best place to look. INSEAD knowledge is a series of blog posts based on the research we do. I have my blog page there and there's something coming out once every month or six weeks or so. So for instance, the last couple of posts were on the idea of remote collaboration in the age of coronavirus. And the one before that was, uh, is it enough to have a lot of data to be able to use AI? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no. So even if you have a lot of data, it doesn't mean AI will be useful for you. And that post explains that. Uh, are, the, are the workshops and the webinars you are doing available to everyone in HR or how do they work? If anyone wants to find out about um, yeah, Organization 2.0, right? You're having a webinar tomorrow on this. That's right. So that one is being, so it depends on who's hosting the webinar. So the one tomorrow is hosted by the Organization Design Consortium, which is the Organization Design Community, I'm sorry, which is a collection of scholars and practitioners who are interested in the topic of organization design. Um, for the, the webinar tomorrow is open only to members. Mm -hmm. But there are other public awareness events that I do either on campus uh, or after I've done them, they become available as YouTube links, which you can okay. find on my webpage. Okay. And last question, where can people find your book? Ah, The Microstructure of Organizations. Yes. 
Um, so that's a book written for for academics primarily, I must say. So I don't want to mislead people into opening it and then you know thinking, wow, this is a geeky book. Uh, but if you're really interested in this stuff, uh, I think you should you can get it online. You can get it on Kindle, and it is an Oxford University Press publication. So you can order it off their website. Perfect. Panish, did I forget to ask you something? Is there something that maybe you wanted to tell the audience and I didn't ask? <laughs> That's an interesting question. What's the question I wish somebody had asked me? Um, do you think I still have a job in 10 years? I think that's that's a question I, I ask myself. So maybe even <laughs> though you haven't asked it, I'm going to ask myself that question. Uh, I think the answer is yes, but it's going to look quite different from what I'm doing now. That's my sense. So I think we really are seeing dramatic changes in the way we do research, the way we teach. So even the way we do the most basic things, such as run a class, is changing right in front of our eyes. Right. So next week, I'm going to teach a, a group of senior executives in Fontainebleau, sitting here in Singapore. And I'm going to be covering very technical concepts around machine learning. So if you had asked me two years ago, can this be done? I would have said, you're crazy. It can't be done. Now I have no choice because I cannot fly. So literally, the, the changes happening around us are, are quite rapid and dramatic. So I, I hope I will still have a job, but I think it will be very different from what I'm doing today. I think it's going to be different for all of us. I'm asking myself this this uh, this question as well. Question. Because if I, I mostly do talent acquisition, and that's uh, definitely highly prone to automation, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, I guess it's important we know the answer. Otherwise, we won't get on that ship to Mars, right? After all, your series is called Skills it, for Mars. Ex exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, maybe maybe the two of us are uh, a bit over the age of going to Mars. But hey, oh, maybe we can, at some point, we can still uh, travel uh, just for fun. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> if the 2033 mission would be uh, successful. <laughs> <laughs> Panish, nice talking, nice talking to you. Thank you very much. And then we do keep in touch. And I'll, yeah, I'll be in touch. Good luck with the uh, with the webinar tomorrow. Thank you very much. Talk Bye. soon. Take care. Bye-bye.